0: Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I am interviewing Ava Glass. Now... Let me tell you a little bit about this. Um, she is an author. She's written quite a few books. In the series uh, under Ava Glass, a- alias Emma, it's all about the world of spies. Just kind of a spy thriller set in England. Really cool stuff. Uh, she actually has a couple different series, and each one's under a slightly different name. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, well, I want to say slightly. Ava Glass is the, the not slightly different at all, it's just completely different. Uh, her actual name is Christy Doherty, and the books that she wrote under her, her actual name, um, are set in Savannah, Georgia, those are the ones that I've read, amazing books, I love kind of those southern mysteries, that's kind of my, uh, my genre, if you will, read a lot of different things, but definitely like that, um. So she wrote those. She wrote as C.J. Doherty, uh, a young adult series set in kind of a boarding school in England. Of course, there's a, a very famous famous series uh, set in a boarding school in England. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Harry Potter. Of course, that's not the one she wrote. Uh, but she did write uh, a boarding school um, series there. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about a lot of really cool stuff. We're going to talk about her early career as a reporter in Savannah, which is kind of the inspiration for um, those Savannah-set books, because it's about a reporter in Savannah, Harper McLean, Uh, that's the series. We're going to talk about these new books, of course, and kind of dive into her her world of... uh, Kind of spies. She is not herself a spy, but she worked for the that uh, that agency in the United Kingdom. She's originally from the United States, but she actually lives in the United Kingdom now. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about some of the uh, the spies she met and kind of the interesting world of that. Uh, like she said, of course, people don't walk up to you and say, "Hey, I'm Bob and I'm a spy." So it's kind of a weird weird world of that. Uh, we'll talk about the time that she uh, she met a spy in her. Uh, her early job interview and didn't necessarily realize it uh, until uh, until a little bit later. So that's a that's a fun story. Uh, we're going to talk about the writing process as a whole. Uh, she's a, a very accomplished writer, so I do think you're going to enjoy kind of hearing the way that she creates her books, um, the ways that she gets ideas. All that kind of stuff. Uh, of course, this isn't a book club. This is not. Uh, that's not what this podcast is. It's about talking to people that have interesting stories to tell. So, between uh, talking about her her career pre being a writer in uh, in crime reporting and in working uh, for the British government, and you know, giving some really cool insight on. Uh, becoming an author in and, and that process. I think you're going to enjoy this one, whether you want to pick up her books or not. Uh, but uh, yeah, without further ado, here is Ava Glass. I'm here today with Ava Glass. Ava, how are you?
1: I'm great, thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, I'm glad to have you. If you would, just just introduce yourself.
1: Well, um, I'm Ava Glass. I'm an author. I live in England, and I've written a book called Alias Emma, which is a espionage novel about a young spy who is assigned to rescue the son of a Russian dissident in modern London. So it happens sort of now, and it all goes rather horrifically wrong. And she has um 12 hours to figure out how to survive.
0: Mm, that's, just a few things happening in that book, it sounds like.
1: <laughs> just a few. <laughs>
0: So I want to talk to you about that here in just a little bit. But the books I've read um, from you are set in Savannah, Georgia, a place that I really like, that I've traveled to, uh, a really, really cool place. What is your connection with with Savannah? Because I know we're speaking to you in the UK now.
1: Yes. So I wrote a series um, uh, that's called The Echo Killing. Only I didn't write it as Ava Glass. That is under my other author name, which is Christy Doherty. So I wrote that book a couple of years ago, the first one, The Echo Killing, and I ended up writing three books in that series, um, all of which are set in Savannah. And um, I have a long um sort of love fest with Savannah, Georgia. It um is the first place where I worked um as a journalist when I was 20 years old and I just got out of college and they hired me, the paper there hired me, um sort of over the phone. And I became mm-hmm. a crime reporter there. Uh, so like a proper baby crime reporter sort of cutting my teeth on in what was the middle of a crime wave um, in the 1990s. And uh, so I did that. I lived there for several years. um, And I I considered them some of the most exciting, interesting, dangerous, thrilling years of my life. And I went on and did many other things. And I I mean, now I've lived in England for more than 20 years. And I'm a novelist. It was all in the past. But like the echo killing was sort of like my love letter to that time I write I wrote it about a journalist it's not about myself but but somebody I recognized I think mm-hmm. um in, in, in so I could use my own history in it and write about what it's like to be a young reporter covering serious crimes and and I made it as realistic as I could I didn't I didn't have to how to put it with some novels when you write them You have to really reach to bring the excitement in and to bring the danger in and that life is just what it is so i didn't i could write it realistically what it's really like to be a young ambitious crime reporter in a southern american city in the middle of a crime wave and so that that was a a book of love in a way the echo killing
0: yeah yeah and I, i really enjoy all three of those books so I'm glad to hear that it was as I'm not saying that's easy to write, but it was it was coming from a place that uh, was maybe easier for you to to grasp. So that that's really cool. I want to kind of talk to you about because you talked about you've done a lot of things other than writing. I know you've had quite the career. Talk to us a little bit about what you've done outside of, uh, you know, the the written word.
1: Well, I mean, I've done many things. They're all, I would say actually everything I've done resolves, revolves around the written word. I don't have any other talents. Uh. <laughs> so <laughs> I started out as a reporter and a journalist, and I did that for 10 years. I ended up, um, my last place where I worked as a journalist was New Orleans. And I was there for, after I left Savannah, so nearly eight years working for Reuters Wire Service and um, the Dallas Times Herald. And um and I did that um, right up until I got offered a job working in London um, as an editor. And I took that job, um, uh, as I say, 22 years ago. And that ended up with me never going back. Mm. <laughs> I settled down. And, um, and since then, after that, um, after working for a publishing house in London, I went to work for the British government for five years mm. um, as a consultant in communications. That's the only time I wasn't writing, really, in my history. And then I was sort of teaching other people how to write for the public. But the people I was teaching were spies because I was working with the counterterrorism team here. I was trying to teach them how to talk to the public in a terror attack. It's a really long story as to how I ended up with that job because it was incredibly random, but involved somebody I know hiring me, basically. Otherwise, they would never have, <laughs> have heard of me. and um, And so that... That lasted five years and I wasn't obviously a spy myself but I, I met people who worked in that world and it was a very strange experience because there's only so much they can tell you if you're not one of them and there is only so much they'll tell you even if you are one of them because they don't trust anybody mm-hmm. and so I still don't know how much of what I learned was really true Mm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) it was a very very fascinating unusual time and I left thinking someday I have to write about this world someday I have to write about what I saw like the little bits the little glimpse into what it's like to do that for a living and that became Alias Emma
0: yeah no that's that's really awesome so where are you you moved to the UK where are you Mm -hmm. originally from is it the United States or where is it
1: so um, I did grow up I grew up in the States I grew up actually in Texas so not far from um, from where I ended up working before I moved here. Um, so yeah, so my, my background is in America. Uh-huh. I have family on both sides of the ocean and I ended up um, living over here.
0: Yeah. And that may be the, the answer to the next question. It's just that you said that you found a, a job in London and that's what moved you. Did you just find something that was just too good to pass up? Were you trying to get back across the pond or, or, or how did that happen? Cause I mean, maybe you've got good connections and you probably do, but I mean, jobs across the, you know, across the world doesn't normally just land on somebody's table.
1: It's funny. I, I, I have no plan to my career. I never had a plan. I've, I've compared my career as less of like a, like a ladder than just a runaway train that Mm. just is, it's just going where it goes and I'm just hanging on. (laughs) And occasionally I fall off and I land somewhere like New Orleans or Savannah or London. Mm. And so the London thing was not planned. I Mm. did a freelance job for a British publishing house when I was living in New Orleans and um, my editor and I really hit it off and it turned into a pretty long job that lasted about like three or four months that I was working on it. And when it finished, she offered me a job if I could you know if I would was willing to move. and I was just at that stage of my life where I was ready for a change and I didn't know what to do. And I saw that as a sign from the gods that I should just try it. And so I went for two years and that was the plan and I never came back.
0: Yeah, well that's really awesome. and I, I think kind of the next question you've you've answered uh, uh, mostly, but I want to just kind of dive a little deeper into it on how you get your ideas. It sounds like you pull a lot from what you, what, you know, um, you know, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of authors that some are just completely personal experience and just twisting them a little bit. Sometimes they're just pulling from the headlines. Sometimes they're getting them in dreams. So I'm just wondering, you know, you have the writer, you were, you were a crime journalist. So it's not too big of a stretch to go there. You worked in, you know, the, the spy world. So that's not a big stretch either. Um, I think you have another series that maybe that one you you, you I don't know. I don't know that you've done that. Um, but where do you get like the actual ideals beyond that? Because I'm sure you didn't. You, I don't think you've done anything in the spy world where you had 12 hours to save the the world. <laughs>
1: I just think ideas like inspiration comes from the oddest places. So my first, the first series I ever wrote was actually a young adult series called Night School. Mm-hmm. And there were five books in that series. And it was, it's it did really well internationally. It didn't do as well in America or Britain but I am telling you, I am famous in Poland. Just Mm. absolutely can't go anywhere in Poland. (laughs) (laughs) So it did really well in Europe for some reason. I couldn't tell you why. And that series was inspired by something I saw in a British newspaper, which was a picture of a secret society that two of the British prime ministers of the last 15 years were members of when they were kids. Mm -hmm. And it's called the Bullingdon Club. And all of the, the government at the time the leaders of the media, the biggest newspaper reporters, the biggest investors and business people were all in the secret society when they were kids, basically, when they were 18 years old. And I found that fascinating. And so I wanted to write about what that was like. And this theory, like this idea, like what if that's where the government came from? What if that's how they chose? What what if, if you were in this particular... Secret Society, later you were rewarded. You got to be prime minister, or you got to be president, or you got to be head of the BBC. And so that was the idea of writing about what their children would make of that and what the new members of that society were like, and what if it all went wrong. So that was my first series. So that came from the newspaper. My second series was The Echo Killing. And for that, I did draw on my real life. So that's the only book I've ever written that's really genuinely inspired by my life. And I can say, yeah, I just, if I hadn't had that job, I would not have written that book. Um, And then Alias Emma, really, even though I wanted to write about spies, I wanted to write about, I mean, that job, it's been eight years, 10 years since I had that job. Um, And so it took me that long to find the story to write in that world. That was the hard part. The easy part was saying, I want to write about a spy. The hard part, was to find a story about a spy that really would grip me, and that wasn't trying to be somebody else. It wasn't trying to be John le Carré. I'm not trying to be Ian Fleming. I'm just trying to write my own story, which is which is the, the key, I think, for every writer. What is the story you want to tell how you want to tell it? And I just didn't have one. And then there was an attempted assassination, not far from where I live, in which two Russian dissidents, a Russian, a man who'd been a Russian spy, who had turned and become, um, been like a helper to the UK. Twenty years ago is when it had happened. Um, but after all that time, now he's retired and living in a tiny, in a small town in the middle of nowhere. The Russians tried to kill him. They put a nerve agent on his doorknob mm. when his daughter was visiting from Russia. They'd followed her. That's how they knew where he lived. Purely as an act of revenge. He wasn't doing anything anymore. Anything he had to say had long ago been told. And his name was, is, is Skripal. They were the Skripals. It was the Skripal murder. But they didn't die. They survived. And that happened close to where I live, in this little, pleasant English town. It's like it happened, I don't know, in Fredericksburg, Texas. Like it made no sense at all that there could be a use of a nerve agent in the middle of a town. So that got me thinking. That was a story. That was interesting. If Russia is going around seeking revenge against people who betrayed it 20 years ago and whose kids have grown up perfectly British. They don't have any connection to their parents' backgrounds as spies. They would be bewildered by this, these now 20-year-old, 25-year-old um, British kids. So that's what I want to try it about. I want to try it about that. The this, this seeking revenge, how far the country would go. How far the spies of Russia or Britain would go to attack or to protect? And yeah, then I had my story.
0: Mm. Yeah, that and that sounds like an interesting story for sure. I guess I want to kind of ask you. Um, you know, you said that you're you're famous in Poland from that first <laughs> series. I wonder what what resonated with Poland so much. Are they sitting <laughs> back there thinking, "How in the world is the UK finding their prime ministers?" I feel like a lot of people wonder that sometimes, but. I, uh, I I wonder what resonated with them so much.
1: I think I think there's um, there are certain universals. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a boarding school mystery. And so therefore setting things in boarding schools, I personally love that. When I was a teenager, literally all I wanted was for my parents to be rich enough to send me away to boarding school. <laughs> so that I <laughs> it just, it, it seems like the most, in books, it's the most exciting place you could possibly go to school, yeah. <laughs> but that did not happen. So I could only imagine it. And where I live, there are tons of these, these famous English boarding schools Or just, I just happen to live outside London where they all so many of them are so I drive past them and they look to my like American eyes like castles like they are amazing settings to go to school in and my high school was across the street from a muffler shop and a Wendy's so this is (laughs) this is a very different world for me I think for every for kids who do not grow up in England as for me a boarding school's fantasy. I might as well be writing about vampires. It is an exciting fantasy and everybody secretly wants to go to one. So that I think is the big hook that really worked. Um, and also there was a lot of, there was a love triangle and every every girl, whether they admit it or not, loves a love triangle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So we know kind of how you you came up with these ideas or some of those inspirations. What is your, what's your process for writing? Are you someone who, you know, has to write 2,000 words a day and sits down until you do? Do you write when you're inspired or or what's that look like?
1: I'm pretty, um, what's the word? I guess I'm pretty like professional about it in a way, probably Mm -hmm. because I was a journalist for so long. And so I have, I have this, like intrinsic requirement somewhere hardwired in my brain by past editors that I have to hit my deadlines and I have to hit my word limits so I generally only write a few hours a day I only allow myself a narrow window three to four hours um and so what I do is I set a word count for those three to four hours and I can't if I don't hit it and I will stop because it I do write from sort of three o'clock to seven o'clock at night, and so I have to kind of stop at seven because it's dinner time. And <laughs> I would not be forgiven for staying out there for another two hours. Um, but if I don't hit it, then I, I have to do more the next day. Uh, but I'm quite gentle with myself. I know how I do it, so I know how I work. And I know in the first sort of eight chapters, I'm only going to write 500 words a day, and that is fine. That's I allow myself that. After the first eight chapters, I have to write a thousand words a day for the next. Sort of ten chapters. Once I've got to that point where I'm eighteen chapters in of a thirty-five or forty chapter book, then I have to write two thousand words a day because then, by then, the story and the characters they need to be in my head. And if they're not, then something's wrong. And if they are, then I should be writing much faster. So that's my that's my graduated approach to um, to word counts. Yeah,
0: that is a very uh, very. I guess, structured professional approach. I don't know that I've heard it exactly that way. So I, I like that. Do you, Um, I mean, is, is your whole book outlined before you start or are you kind of seeing where it takes you? You said that your life, you kind of see where it takes you. I'm wondering if you do the same thing with your books.
1: Actually, it does depend on the book. Mm-hmm. So when I was writing young adult, I tended just to, to what they call pants it or wing it. I just mm-hmm. let it go where it went. I would have a destination. I would know kind of where I wanted to end, what I wanted to fit in that book. Otherwise, I would just let it go. And I really like writing like that. But I found with crime novels, and especially with spy novels, I can't get away with it. There's too many twisting, turning strands. And so I have to have at least a pretty good outline of of where I want everybody to go. And, and when I went to introduce new strands, and so I, I do have like an eight page outline ish, not chapter by chapter, and not certainly not scene by scene. That is just, I just can't even imagine a scene by scene outline. But just generally, this is where I, I, I should be around now. And that helps me not lose things. I, I But I think it also makes it like... I don't know the structure. The additional structure is not my favorite. And if I could still get away with just knowing how I want to start and how I want to end and just writing it, I, I swear I would. I, I it's my favorite way to write. But I'm too scared with spy novels. I'm too scared of losing something and and getting lost in my own story.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I hear you there for sure. I feel like if you just let it go for too long, you wind up with a, a thousand pages and you got to figure out what the world to do with all that. Um, exactly. How how many books have not. Uh, not been finished. Are you somebody who, if you hit a spot, are you do you le- do you shelf it and go to something you're more inspired by, or do you find a way to make things work?
1: I definitely find a way to make things work. I have, I've had books where I got really stuck, um, and there was one I just couldn't start, and I was really worried about it. Um, and it took a really long time to start, and but I figured out I wouldn't let go of it until I figured out that I just needed to move it in time. When I moved it in time, I could tell the same story now, but without the things that were weighing it down. And so that's what I do. I try to figure out why it won't write. I would say the echo killing is the one that I shelved for the longest. I started writing that in 2006. And I didn't publish it until 2014, I think. No, later than that, 2016, I think is when The Echo Killing came out. So that's a long time for it to be sitting in a drawer. And I threw away everything I'd written before. I just started fresh, but I used the same idea. I knew I wanted to write about this reporter and I knew where I wanted her to live. I just couldn't get the story to work until then. And so I think my approach, it's that I wait till it's time for the story. And so then, when I write it i I, I won't force it. I won't force the story. I'll put the whole idea away, um, maybe for a decade sometimes, and then come back to it later when the time is right, rather than throwing the idea away forever.
0: yeah, yeah, I think that's really that's really awesome for sure and I, I wonder too, because i when I've talked to, to authors, definitely accomplished authors like, like yourself, I feel like there's two there's two kinds, and maybe maybe you're a third kind, but there's a the kind that you know are love their book so much that they finish the book and they're like, I think this is the best one I've ever written. I'm super excited about it. And there's the, also the kind that like, well, I mean, I did the best I could. I'm not exactly sure whether this is, is what it needs to be or not. So there's the pessimistic and the optimistic ones. Where, where do you sit? It
1: kind of depends on the day. Yeah. So <laughs> every time I sit down to write a book, I'm so confident in my idea. And I feel so ready. And I'm like, chapter one, here we go. This is going to be great. And then obviously just immediately run into a wall because that's how chapter one works. It is just chapter one is a wall that you run into over and over again. Mm. Um, I think I get to chapter eight and I'm always super confident and very excited. Like, yes, 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 this is working. This is great. This is the greatest idea I've ever had. Then I get to about chapter 16, the middle. The middle is just, it's the land of, of tragedy and heartbreak. And so (laughs) I'm in the middle and I'm trying, like, what can I do? This is the worst idea I've ever had. How could I, why am I writing this horrible, horrible book? Hmm. Then I get to chapter 25 and I'm like, this is fantastic. And I race to the end, feeling like a genius. Then I sit down and read it all over and I want to quit and go (laughs) do something else for a living. I could be an an architect. I've always wanted to be an architect. I have no talent, but maybe if I retrained, um, it's (laughs) only by the time it gets to copy edit. Copy edit, or maybe even the proof edit stage—the very last stage—do I then kind of get my confidence back and think, "Oh, actually, that's a good line. This isn't too bad. There's at least one good line in this book." So I think I'm somewhere in the middle of the misery. This is the worst thing, and the amazing—I'm the greatest writer ever.
0: <laughs> I like it. I like that. I like that you've got—you know—you got your stages of—I don't know whether it's grief or or accepting—but <laughs> you've got that those stages. So that's that's really funny for sure. And you know, we talked about how you have written three different series. I, I don't know whether this one's turning into a series, but you've written three different, you know, areas and all three have slightly, well, two of them have slightly different names. One of them is a totally different name. Why is it that um I guess you, you write under, under different names?
1: Oh, it's such a weird thing. Publishing is so strange and I still am not sure I agree with it, but okay, here's how it goes. <clears throat> so my first book was young adult and, publishing is like obsessed with the idea that if you publish your adult books the books you write for adults under the same name as your young adult then they'll get misfiled misplaced and everybody will get confused the bookstores will put it with the young adult instead of the adult libraries librarians won't know what to do with it and people don't like confusion so I had um for my young adult I was CJ Doherty for my adult I was Christy Doherty and um Then I took a break and worked on the espionage. And what I'm told is, well, this is such a different genre from your like my Savannah, Georgia reporter crime novel to British London based um, spy that it it needs a completely different identity. So because it will just confuse people and it will confuse librarians and it will confuse bookshops. And I'm like, okay, fine. Mm. fine fine but on my website I do put all the names so then all the books and I'm very open about the fact that I use pseudonyms um, and I'm just kind of, I mean, it's, it's always been that way. So I, there's this amazing Scottish writer from the 1920s called Josephine Tay, and it's T-E-Y. I highly recommend everybody read her book. She was sort of like a Scottish Agatha Christie. I love her. Mm. Um, but she wrote plays under the name Gordon something something. She wrote books under another man's name, and she wrote under her own name. It is just the way publishing is. People have always had these different, you know, nom de plume, and they, I, I find it, I'm kind of coming around to find if this is a tradition, I'm willing to embrace this tradition, but it's also super confusing in a weird way.
0: Yeah, is, I feel like it would be a little bit scary as a writer too. Like, I feel like I've built a little bit of a fan base under this name and now I got to find a whole different fan base that may not, I mean, you were talking about it, it may be confusing for a librarian, but what about the, your readers who know you under a certain name and now had no idea it's the same writer?
1: Well, you would think right? Like that yeah. is exactly the conversation yeah. I've had with, with people in publishing and it is just odd Publishing has all these strange quirks mm-hmm. that have just been around forever, the way they pay royalties, the way they you know they sell books, the way we do names for books um, that I find like as in, as somebody who didn't I didn't come up through that fiction world I didn't I didn't spend years working in it. If you just step into it, it's just like, why are you people like this? Why is everything like this? And it's just tradition. So I am, you can fight it or you can go along with the flow and I'm going and I'm hoping people come with me, but they are very different do- books. And you could see it also as Ava Glass will bring readers to Christie because I'm open about my other name and Christie and CJ will bring writers to, to Ava and Christie. And I mean, readers, I mean, not writers. So mm-hmm. you see what I mean? Like it is um, hopefully it crosses over. That's all you can, you can only hope.
0: Yeah, and I feel like you would get your most loyal loyal readers to to cross over with you, and those that are, I don't know, fair weather fans. I could just see them leaving a a bad Amazon review. Like this is nothing like her other books. I do yes. not like this. Exactly.
1: <laughs> so I, I
0: could I could see the issue there. Um, and this is a dangerous question that you can you can pass on too. But I've talked to a lot of uh, a lot of writers that are, are very well accomplished, award winning, New York Times best selling writers, but exactly what you said that they've dealt for 20, 30 years on a tradition of publishing and how it works and they're burnt out on it. And there's several that now with the advent of Amazon, they're doing a lot of things on their own because they don't want to deal with all of that, all of Mm. the the hierarchy of of that.
1: Yeah, I completely, yeah, I know what you're saying. And I, I do too. I know people who've switched over. I actually see like, internet publishing, new publishing as it's just an opportunity. It just gives control to authors so that they can do what they want for the first time ever. You can sign with a publisher. I'm with Penguin right now with my series, and I like them a lot. Um, I, I've had past publishers I did not like a lot. And if they were my only option, absolutely, I would 100% like, put my books out myself. I love that idea. Um, and I think it's, there are good books that people are just deciding. I mean, James Patterson is basically broken the mold completely. He has his own system. He has his own staff. He basically has his own publishing house and it's not hurting him at all. And so I think there is a lot to be said for that approach. I happen to love like very luckily to have landed with a publisher I really love, who's yeah. doing a lot of work for me and, and I wouldn't want to have to do all of their jobs. So I'm pretty happy to, um, to stick with that, but I have much respect and I buy a lot of books from people who do it their own way. And I think that's a good thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if this is the only only episode that somebody listens to, I think the the huge advice on that from what I've I've heard from people is self-publishing is great if you have an a name that people are gonna follow you and find you on Amazon. But publishers are great to actually get your name out. Cause if you self-publish a book that no one knows who the world you are you know, that's a, that's a recipe for not selling very many books. So there's where the, there's where it is. I think you've got to, you got to conform to the system first to get that name out there for sure. Yeah. Um, talk, talk a little bit about, um, and you, you talked about your process and that's, I think that's a great insight on, on people who want to write, but what advice do you have to people to, to create a book that anybody wants to read? That's, that's worth, uh, worth picking up.
1: Oh, it's so tricky. It took me so long to write my first book to find my first story and as i think as i mentioned earlier i ended up shelving it the first time i tried to write a novel and shelving it for a long time like nearly a decade so i think there's multiple bits of advice i can give um that might help but mostly it comes from from your own patience with yourself and and practice it's like any um any art form. I suppose if you want to learn to play the piano, you keep playing the piano over and over again until you get better. The same is true of writing a book. Nobody sits down. Nobody sits down to write their first novel. And out comes this amazing magnum opus, perfectly formed and shaped. It's exactly the opposite. It's like actually the first time you sit to write a novel, sit down to write a novel, it's like the first time you sat down to play the piano. It's a mess. It's a discordant mess. And you just think I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to be able to do this. And then you just have to remember that every concert pianist sat down to play, you know, (laughs) how much is that doggy in the window when they were five years old and it was terrible. And they thought I'm never going to be able to do this. So the key is read a lot. Know the genre you want to write in. So if you want to write crime, read all the crime, good crime, bad crime, terrible crime, old crime, read it all. Just become obsessive with it. Reading is step one. And then once you really understand it, then try to find your idea. And your idea will come to you eventually. It won't come to you right away. It's not just going to be there. And don't, and you're going to want to force it. You're going to want to write about like this thing that you've seen or you actually sort of know. And in a way, I tried to do that first. I tried to write about myself first, so a journalist. And I was too close to it. I just Mm. kept writing my own actual life, which was not as interesting Mm. as as fiction should be. Mm. The first time I was able to really write a story was when I tried to write about a British girl being sent to a boarding school at 16 years old. Nothing like me, not my experience, and just imagining what her life was like. And once I tried to imagine outside my own world experience, completely outside it, I discovered fiction, if you see what I mean. Up until then, I'd been reading fiction, but my writing was nonfiction. And the beauty of fiction is making it all up. So what for me, I had to learn that. That was my journey, was understanding and believing that I could just make up a story that was worth reading and then figuring out what that story was. Mm-hmm. And... And once I did that, it was the most freeing, liberating thing. It was like flying when I started writing, because I was doing, I am I have been an obsessive reader since I was a little kid. I've always read 100 books a year, always. Suddenly, I was writing one, which meant I got total control over where the story went. And every day when I sat down to write, I was inventing a story I wanted to read. And it was this incredibly magical experience completely liberating and if i hadn't sold that book if nobody ever wanted to read it i would have just kept going i would have just it wouldn't have mattered i would have just written five books anyway um because of, i enjoyed it it was it was escape it was purest escape so but finding that story and it did take a long time to find that story and you kind of know when you find it cuz suddenly you can see all the pieces. It's like a puzzle in your head, all the pieces falling into place. And it's not an experience we have otherwise in our lives. So you Mm. can feel it. You can physically feel the shift from a terrible story that won't work to a good one that you want to read. You really want to read it. And to read it, you have to write it. It's the why we write. We write so we know how the story ends. Otherwise, nobody will ever know because mm. you haven't written it. So find that story and take your time. Don't force it. It will come to you in the most unexpected way. You'll read a book and you'll think, yeah, wait, what if somebody wrote that? What if they gender flipped it? And what if she was rescuing him? Mm. And what if she wasn't a cop? What if she was a spy? And so then what would be the reason? Why would she be-? That's how it goes. And when you, when you, when that story comes to you like that, then, then you got it. you got it. Just write it down really fast because you will quickly forget it. Mm. Just <laughs> write down your ideas until suddenly you think that's the book I want to read. Mm. Then go write it.
0: I love that. I love that. And I think that, you know, there's, there's a tough question here, I think maybe to answer. And then also for, for a listener to, to hear how, how much of, of being a writer do you think is a learned skill? Just like you're talking about piano. I've talked to somebody that's a professional pianist and they say you can get to a certain point, but then there is a natural ability. There's an innate ability that takes people beyond that. And actually that's where the ones that are concert pianists, how much of being a writer do you think is a learned skill that somebody can eventually hone, or there's just a spot where if you're really going to be a good writer, there's just a natural ability there.
1: Mm, That's such a good question. Oh man. I think there is, there is talent is a thing talent is real and i've known amazing talented guitarists who couldn't write but two words together of of any story but could make magic out of an instrument and it's and you do of course you do have to figure out where your talent lies and whether you got it or not when it comes to writing i can't deny that writing for whatever reason is just a thing i could always do even when i was young i could do it i could write a heck of an essay when i was 13 years old you know so it's it is an ability. You can learn, though, I think. There are some writers who write technically well. And technical writing, technically writing a good novel, that's a thing. Like, I've read, I, there are certain writers I think are good technical writers. I think Patricia Cornwell is a good technical writer. I don't think she's a writer necessarily of, of that innate talent. I think it's different. I think what she does, and does incredibly well, is a really good page-turnery, crime novely thing, <laughs> if I could put it like that, because mm. it's forensic and it's mm. slightly different and it brings different things to the forefront without having, you know, Fitzgeraldian kind of turns of phrase or that sort of natural ability to use the most, the perfect word. You don't always need that. Mm. If you're technically good, you can be like one of those kids who tests well, you know, do you know what I mean? Like in school, there are kids who just mm. took really good tests, But maybe couldn't do the essay part or couldn't do some other part of it. But my God, they always made straight A's and I envied them so much because I was exactly the opposite. (laughs) I could do everything except test well. And so if you see what I mean, yeah, I think there is a talent element to it without question. And some people it will be easier because they've got that natural ability. But there are plenty of writers out there who are good technical writers mm. writing great books that we enjoy writing, reading, I mean. So yeah, you can, you can do it both ways, but do also, I think it is important to be honest with yourself and you may reach a point where you think, okay, I'm always just going to write for myself. This will always be something I write because I enjoy it, but I don't think I've got the skill or whatever it takes to make a big hit novel. And that's fine too. That's fine too. People paint watercolors in their houses because they love it. And they hang that watercolor on the wall and it brings them joy. So don't not do it just because, you know, Penguin isn't pounding on your door, demanding your book. It doesn't matter. It doesn't always matter. Art is for the writer and the creator as much as it is for the the reader and the, uh, the audience.
0: Yeah. No, I think two things you said in there, I think really resonate with me. One is, you know, Exactly what it almost, almost anything when somebody is trying to, to get other people to listen, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a book, whether it's any kind of art form, really, if you're doing it for yourself, you're going to have a a good time. If you're just simply trying to write something or create something that everyone else is going to like, it's not really very natural and it's not normally going to go very well. So I I like that. Um, I also like, you know, you're talking about the technical writer and then somebody who's was just a little bit better with the words, because I definitely see that in books. The ones that are a good book, um, but then there's ones that you know somebody just writes a certain thing that you're like, oh, that is smooth and you just need to read it again. So I, <laughs> I I I feel I feel you there for sure. Uh from I guess from one a little bit tough question, which I think you answered amazingly, to I think another tough question. And yeah. that would be what uh you know, because you've written three different areas Is there one that you like the best? Do you have a favorite or is that like picking a favorite kid?
1: It's so hard to choose because every time I've written of the three series that I've written, um, Night school, the first one. I, I've never had a more joyous experience writing since mm-hmm. because it was, I didn't know what I was doing and there was nobody to stop me. And so I could just write what I wanted in a way I wanted. And it was absolutely free. I just felt free the whole time. I could tell my publisher, this is what's going to happen in the next book. It should be awesome. Go. And I would go write it. And it was just wonderful and when you're writing for young people they're so accepting and you can take chances and they love that and you can you know you can do things that you know it's just it's a different world and you're so rewarded as a young adult writer because teenagers are utterly delightful and joyous and I would I still still to this day get emails from teenagers telling me they love me <laughs> everybody just says I love you you're the greatest writer ever and I'm like god I love kids Kids are amazing. <laughs> they just lift you up. They constantly yeah. lift you up and you try to give back to them. And it's just this amazing experience to have. So I loved that. Uh, writing about the echo killing. So setting a book in Savannah in the city, I love with um, people like I kind of can relate to. And I remember experiencing that life. that. That was pure joy. I loved her voice. I loved Um, Harper McLean's voice I loved her best friend Bonnie I loved the cops she worked with I knew those cops like I knew cops just like that and I loved her whole life and so that it's hard to explain that took me back it made me feel like I was 22 again and I enjoyed that so much it was just this exhilarating experience of just going out of my own world back to this this place I I don't get to go to very often anymore because I live so far away so Mm. I adored that and I I just, I would have written 50 books in that series if I if my publisher had wanted to keep going. I wrote three and I loved it, but if they'd let me go, I would have kept going. Mm. And so now to get to write about spies, like that is just an adrenaline rush and it's twisty turny and it suits my, you know, the darker recesses of my mind to come up with this curvy, tangly plot to imagine, you know, Making people trustworthy, untrustworthy, to play around with the shifting sands of espionage and the untrustworthiness of it, and to write a central character that hopefully people will, will believe in and want to spend time with. And also more than anything, to write a female spy who looks and feels like a like a male spy, like the spies we grew up with, like James Bond, like mm-hmm. you know, like Jason Bourne. I wanted to write a female equivalent of that and and to show because. I met a lot of female spies and some of the greatest spies in history have been women. It is something that needs to be written. And so that getting to write about a strong, determined, flawed, um, brave woman, like that's, that's just, that's exhilarating. And I love it. And I, I could spend plenty of time in that world, but mm. I'm only one book in. So I mm. don't yet, I don't yet love it. Like I loved the echo mm-hmm. killing. Cause I got three books into that. So I was Deeped in that world or five books in night school where that was just my whole life. So, yeah, give me another book and then I'll tell you which one is my favorite.
0: <laughs> I, I like that. I, I like I like all that. And I it's kind of a strange thing to say. I don't think I've ever even really mentioned this when I'm talking to an author before. But I always like to like have the actual book and then also the e-book just so I can kind of go back and forth when I'm thinking about a voice because obviously what I create is one thing and what the ebook is is another. The reason I want to kind of mention that to you is you're talking about how much you liked Harper's voice. Obviously we're talking about it in a different way, but the person who read your books, the the Harper character, mm. I did I liked her voice. I thought that her voice was just I just thought I just really liked it because I remember reading, you know, the first couple chapters and then switching to that. I'm mm. like, I need to just listen to this because I think she did an awesome job in reading it.
1: Oh my God, I can tell you that Sophie Amos was my reader. She's amazing. And it was just a fluke. She was chosen by my publishers. Mm-hmm. And when they sent me her um, her name and her like website, so I could take a look and see what I thought and listen to her reel, um, her name sounded familiar. And so I Googled her and she was from New Orleans, which is where I had lived before I moved to England. And she had the same name as the publisher of the... Uh, New Orleans Times-Picayune newspaper had when I lived there. And I didn't work for the Times-Picayune. I worked for the weekly alternative newspaper in, in New Orleans called Gambit. And I was an investigative crime reporter. And, um, but everybody knew Jim Amos. And so I, they gave me her email. So I emailed her and I said, are you by any chance related to Jim Amos? And um, she was, she's his daughter. And she'd grown up crawling on her hands and knees around the newsroom of the Times-Picayune. She had lived in newsrooms. That was her You know, bread and butter. Her dad was one of the most famous um, editors in the South. Mm -hmm. And here she was reading my book about a newspaper reporter in Savannah, Georgia. And I just thought that was perfect. I mean, what what serendipity that a newspaper kid would grow up to read a book about a newspaper woman. You know, it was just, she just has a lovely voice and a lovely attitude. And I love that she ended up reading it.
0: Yeah, I that that's even more amazing. So, yeah, it, it did feel like kind of kismet. So it does sound like there's a reason for it, for sure. Uh, you, I mean, you've done a really good job already kind of covering what your, your different series are about, what your current book is about. Uh, I guess I just kind of want to open the floor, talk about whatever you want when it comes to this new book, what people are going to to find when they pick it up. Um, if you want to cover anything about the previous ones, that's, that's perfectly fine. We can focus on what you've got going now, uh, but the floor is yours to to talk to the listener.
1: Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. I suppose um, I love the chance to talk a little bit more about where the idea for Alias Emma came from, because it had all these. We talk about ideas and writers ideas and how they get them. And so the Skripal attack happened in 2018. And it was huge news over here because it was a nerve agent used on British soil and it was clearly um, Russian provocation. And it was in the middle of this thing that we have in England, particularly in London. London is just a city of spies. Like there are just spies everywhere. And we have these crazy things that happen where it just momentarily cracks through the, the wall of protectiveness and we see it for just a second. So there was... Um, A Russian expat who was murdered with polonium in a teapot in an expensive London hotel, which was placed there by former comrades who'd been spies with him for the Russian government, which he had then left to come work for the the British side. And that was their revenge. So they killed him with radiation um, and he died very slowly and very brutally. And that happened in a hotel where I'd had lunch just, what, two weeks before with a friend. So that happened there was a man i think 20 years ago who was assassinated with the poison tip of an umbrella as he walked across a bridge in the rain in london a man just poked him with a needle there was poison on the t- on the end and he died within days and then the script ball so you see we don't even know how many assassinations or targeted assassinations have happened here because there is a war going on literally all the time around us the cold war never ended and the war agent, the, the, the spies are the war agents, and they are constantly circling each other. And London is one of the places where this happens the most. And I just, I just became kind of obsessed with it. When I was working for the Home Office, so the British Government Department, I was dealing with people who were dealing with domestic terrorism. So things that were happening inside the UK, not Russian um, in those days, it was all you know, related to the war in Afghanistan and that kind of thing. So it's quite different. Um, But at the same time, I got to kind of just get a peek at how constantly they're working, how constantly people would just disappear, who I worked with for three weeks and then come back and nobody would ask where they were because nobody ever asks where you've been. And, um, and the fact that I didn't really know how many people I worked with were actually spies, because nobody comes up to you when you work in the government and says, "Hi, I'm Tom. I'm a spy." <laughs> They'll say, "Hi, I'm Tom. I work in logistics," right. and you think, "What is logistics?" <laughs> in this circumstance, they have a, they have cover and they stick to it. And I'd actually been working for the government for two years before I realized I didn't know anybody's real name. I all I knew was the name that was in the system, and it I. It just occurred to me that, of course, that's not their real name. And yet they knew everything about me because I was not a spy. So my entire life, background research was done on me. Everybody knew who I was down to the absolute ground. Um, and yet I knew nothing about them at all. It's a one-sided system. You don't know. I, I, if you live in a big city, in say you live in New York or San Francisco or London I'm, or Washington DC, definitely, I'm quite convinced at some point you might have met a spy and you would not have known. And, but they would know about you. <laughs> you see what I mean? Like it's an unfair and it has to be. And that absolutely fascinated me. And I met when I worked for the government, this young woman who I, I just hung around with me for a few weeks, she just appeared when I first started when they were doing my background checking. And I was waiting to be approved, because you have to be so intensely researched before you can work in government with this kind of information. And so there was about a six week gap after they hired me when I couldn't do anything, I was just there. And I was waiting to be approved. And um, during that time, I met this young woman, she was very cool, very ordinary, very Normal. She was normal in a friendly, clever way, and you meet a lot of clever people when you work for the government. And she was very interested in my background, and we went to lunch a couple of times, and we had coffee a couple of times, and um, hung out and just chatted. And she asked a lot about my family, and I'm a complete open book, so of course I'm telling her about my father and my brother and my mom, and um, how I ended up over here, and about my jobs, and you know how this company went out of business and that one hired me, and then my friend Dorothy, she was working here and she hired me. Blah blah blah. And then one day this girl just disappeared this woman she disappeared her name disappeared from the email system it was as if she'd never been there and the next day they gave me my first basic real job i got to work she was my background check she was never my friend she was the end of my background check she was the last step and i was so fascinated by how calm and cool and deceptive she was I was also kicking myself because why am I such an idiot that I just didn't notice? (laughs) But also she was good and she was young. And I wanted to, how do you get to be that good at such a complete comprehensive deception? And she couldn't have been 30 yet. And so that that fascinates me. So I wanted to write Mm. about that kind of person and what it's like to be her. I dedicated my book to her. Alias Emma is dedicated to her.
0: Mm, I, I love that. And I feel like you're just working so much in that world and not knowing very much about the people. I, I would want to write a book too. Just so I'm like, I'm finally this person in this book. I know them. I actually know them because I created them.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> oh, I like that. How can people pick up this book and, and any other ones?
1: um all of them are available in bookshops all over the place so alias emma is is out now it's it's still in hardback at the moment um the paperback will come out i think in the spring march april Mm -hmm. um But yeah, keep an eye out. It's everywhere you would buy a book. Uh, The Echo Killing is paperback everywhere now. Um, So and ebook, obviously, and audiobook, as you mentioned, very kindly. Mm -hmm. And also I'll say the audiobook for Alias Emma similarly has an amazing reader whose voice I just love. So um, yeah, so the audiobook is a good alternative if you're if you're an audiobook person.
0: I like that for sure. And I I guess I want to kind of wrap things up and just asking what what's what is what do you hope the future holds i realize that you know, you're know you on that speeding train and you're not always 100 percent sure <laughs> but if you got to pick exactly what happened are we writing more alias emma books or maybe you know the the harper area opening back up are you creating a totally different series are you going back to night school what are we doing
1: I think, well, I've, I think I've done enough night school because in the end, I did go back to night school a couple of years ago and I wrote two follow-up books set in that world called one's called number 10 about the daughter of the prime minister. And the second one is called Codename firefly. And they sort of brought the story up to date mm-hmm. and I feel done with that. Now mm-hmm. um, I want I, if I'm given my druthers, if, if people stick with me, if my publishers believe in me and people read the book and like it, then I would do five, Books in the Alias Emma series, because I like five is a good number. Mm. And if I could do that, um, then I would come back to Harper and I would write three more books in that series. I really would. If I could go back to The Echo Killing, I'd love to do that. Mm. And I wouldn't care. You know how I talked about how, like, if publishers don't want to do something and you've been around a while, you can do it yourself. I would. Mm. If nobody wanted it, I'd just publish it myself because Mm. that's a world I like to spend time in. But I got to make some money first. And Mm. I love my spies. (laughs) So if they let me write, five books in this series that I think I would reward myself with three Harper books for which I would probably make nothing, but I would enjoy the, the time and the, and just mm-hmm. go for the ride.
0: I love it. Well, I haven't read, I haven't read the new book yet. That's definitely on the list, but just out of obviously self self, uh, you know, absorption, I, I hope that you write those five just so we can get those other Harper books.
1: Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, don't. I've already written two in Alias, I Emma. Mean, the second book comes out next year, and I've written the second one already. So only three books to go and before only... I would be allowed to go back to my Harper
0: <laughs> World. <laughs> only three more to go there. Yeah, well, I, uh, I guess in truly wrapping things up, where where can people find you? We know where we can find the books, but people want to to connect more uh, with with you. What's the website? What's your social media?
1: And um, so the website for Alias Emma is avaglass.co.uk. Mm-hmm. And um, I on social media, I'm Ava Glass Books. If they want to find Christy or CJ, I'm CJ underscore Doherty. And it's Doherty with a D-A-U because my parents torture me. And as opposed to a D-O-U, which everybody types first. <laughs> and my website is ChristyDoherty.com. So both of them are out there and they cross over to each other. So if you find one, you'll find the other.
0: I got you. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a joy.
0: So that was Ava Glass. Really appreciate her time. The name things are strange to me, definitely given I have actually read Christy Doherty's books before even asking her to come join me on this interview. Uh, So strange that there's three different names. We talked about why that's the case. Of course... Today she's Ava Glass because uh, you know she's promoting this uh, new book, and uh, and it, it seems to be a, a really really fascinating one with a, a lot going on. I don't know if you remember the plot from the beginning, but uh, somebody has a limited amount of time to uh, to save the world. So just a just a few things happening there. I urge you to check that out. I urge you to check out her other books, uh, ones under C. J. Doherty, the uh, the boarding school books. Uh, myself, I can highly, highly recommend the Harper MacLean books set in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, that is under christy Doherty, just an amazing author. Uh, I really appreciated her time. She was uh, she was very candid on the the writing process, how she came up with those ideas, all that kind of fun stuff. Hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, whether you really are, are big on uh, reading and uh, these type of uh, type of books, I think she has. Books in a lot of different genres, one uh, hopefully is is of your interest. Uh, if you're not a big reader, hopefully you just enjoyed kind of the story. I, I do think she had some really fun stories to, to share, uh, just some of those uh you know, poisonings and all that kind of stuff in in England, the spy world, uh, interesting for sure there as well. Go check her out. I will put a link to her page on Amazon. I will put a link to her website. Um, Give her some love should you want to uh, to get a book. uh, Follow along with her. And, uh, yeah, I, I really, really appreciate her being here. I appreciate you being here as well. If you are interested in, uh, in following along with us, of course, not in enough podcasts on Instagram, not help with Jackson Huff on Facebook. I really appreciate if you leave uh, five stars on uh, on Spotify, on Apple, and on Apple if you haven't already. And, uh, and also, leave a written review on Apple. That would be extra amazing. But, yeah, appreciate you being here. Another great guest next week. If you haven't listened to all 100-plus other episodes, a lot of great guests in the past, I urge you to check those out, too. Uh, But we'll see you next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.